Welcome to this uvula audio presentation of Stiff Upper Lip Jeeves by P.G. Woodhouse. Volume 4 Chapter 11 Jeeves's advent drew from me a startled goggle, and I rather think a cry of amazement. Last man I'd ever expected to see, and how he had got here defeated me. I've sometimes felt that he must dematerialize himself like those fellows in India, the fakirs I think they're called who fade into thin air in Bombay and turn up five minutes later in Calcutta or points west with all their parts reassembled. Nor could I see how he had divined that the young master was in sore straits and in urgent need of his assistance, unless it was all done by what I believe is termed telepathy. Still, here he was, with his head bulging at the back and his face having that look of quiet intelligence which comes from eating a lot of fish, and I welcomed his presence. I knew from experience what a wizard he was at removing the oppressed from the soup, and the soup was what I was at this point in my affairs deeply immersed in. Major Plank, he said. Plank, too, was goggling. Who on earth are you? Chief Inspector Witherspoon, sir, of Scotland Yard. This man has been attempting to obtain money from you, has he not? He's just been doing that very thing. As I suspected, we have had our eyes on him for a long time, but till now have never been able to apprehend him in the act. A notorious crook, is he? Precisely, sir. He is a confidence man of considerable eminence in the underworld, who makes a practice of calling at houses and extracting money from their owners with some plausible story. He does more than that. He pinches things from people and tries to sell them, Look at that statuette he's holding. It's a thing I sold to Sir Watkin Bassett, who lives in Totley in the World. And he had the cool cheek to come here and try to sell it to me for five pounds. Indeed, sir. With your permission, I will impound the object. You'll need it as evidence? Exactly, sir. I shall now take him to Totley Towers and confront him with Sir Watkin. Yes, do. That will teach him. Nasty hangdog look the fellow's got. I suspected from the first he was wanted by the police. Had him under observation for a long time, have you? Oh, yes, sir, for a very long time. He is known to us at the yard as Alpine Joe, because he always wears an Alpine hat. He's got it with him now. He never moves without it. You'd think he'd have the sense to adopt some rude disguise. You would indeed, sir, but the mental processes of a man like that are hard to follow. Then there's no need for me to phone the local police. None, sir. I will take him into custody. You wouldn't like me to hit him over the head first with a Zulu knob carry? That is unnecessary, sir. It might be safer. No, sir. I am sure he will come quietly. Well, have it your way, but don't let him give you the slip. I will be very careful, sir. And shove him into the dungeon with dripping walls, and see to it that he is well gnawed by rats. Very good, sir. What with all the stuff about reverse passes and prop forwards, plus the strain of seeing gentlemen's personal gentlemen appear from nowhere, and of having to listen to that loose talk about Zulu knobberries, the Worcester Bean was not at its best as we moved off and there was nothing in the way of conversational give-and-take until we had reached my car, which I had left at the front gate. "'Chief Inspector who?' I said, recovering a modicum of speech as we arrived at our objective. "'Witherspoon, sir.' "'Why Witherspoon?' "'On the other hand,' I added, for I like to look at both sides of the thing, "'why not Witherspoon?' "'However, that is not germane to the issue, and can be reserved for later discussion. "'The real point, the nub, the thing that should be thrashed out immediately is how on earth you come to be here. I anticipated that my arrival might occasion you a certain surprise, sir. I hastened after you directly. I learned of the revelation Sir Watkin had made to Miss Bing, for I foresaw that your interview with Major Plank would be embarrassing, and I hoped to be able to intercept you before you could establish communication with him. Practically all of this floated past me. What, what do you mean, the revelation Bob Bassett made to Stiffy? It occurred shortly after luncheon, sir. Miss Bing informs me that she decided to approach Sir Watkin 
and make a last appeal to his better feelings. As you are aware, the matter of the statuette has always been one that affected her deeply. She thought that if she reproached Sir Watkin with sufficient vehemence, something constructive might result. Greatly to her astonishment, she had hardly begun to speak when Sir Watkin, chuckling heartily, asked if she could keep a secret. He then revealed that there was no foundation for the story he had told Mr. Travers, and that, in actual fact, he had paid Major Plank a thousand pounds for the object. "'It took me perhaps a quarter of a minute to sort all this out. "'A thousand quid?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Not a fiver?' "'No, sir.' "'You mean he lied to Uncle Tom?' "'Yes, sir.' "'What on earth did he do that for?' "'I thought he would say he had a notion, but he didn't.' "'I think Sir Watkins' motive was obvious, sir.' "'Not to me?' "'He acted from a desire to exasperate Mr. Travers, sir. "'Mr. Travers is a collector, and collectors are never pleased "'when they learn that a rival collector has acquired at an insignificant price "'an object art of great value.' It penetrated. I saw what he meant. The discovery that Pop Bassett had got hold of a thousand quid thingamagummy for practically nothing would have been gall and W to Uncle Tom. Sniffy had described him as writhing like an egg whisk, and I could well believe it. It must have been agony for the poor old buster. Well, you've hit it, Jeeves. It's just what Pop Bassett would do. Nothing would please him better than to spoil Uncle Tom's day. What a man, Jeeves. Yes, sir. Would you like to have a mind like that? No, sir. Nor me. It just shows how being a magistrate saps the moral fibre. I remember thinking as I stood before him in the dock that he had a shifty eye and that I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw an elephant. I suppose all magistrates are like that. There may be exceptions, sir. I doubt it. Twisters, every one of them. So my errand was... What, Jeeves? Bootless, sir. Bootless? That doesn't sound right, but I suppose you know. Well, I wish the news you've just sprung could have broken before I presented myself at Shea Plank. I would have been spared a testing ordeal. I can appreciate the nervous strain you must have undergone, sir. It is unfortunate I was not able to arrive earlier. How did you arrive at all? That's what's puzzling me. You can't have walked. No, sir. I borrowed Miss Bing's car. I left it some little distance down the road and proceeded to the house on foot. Hearing voices, I approached the French window and listened, and was thus enabled to intervene at the crucial moment. Very resourceful. Thank you, sir. I should like to express my gratitude, and when I say gratitude, I mean heartfelt gratitude. Not at all, sir. It was a pleasure. But for you, Plank would have had me in the local caboose in a matter of minutes. Who is he, by the way? I got the impression he was an explorer of sorts. Yes, sir. Pretty far-flung, I gathered. Extremely, sir. He has recently returned from an expedition into the interior of Brazil. He inherited the house where he resides from a deceased godfather. He breeds cocker spaniels, suffers somewhat from malaria, and eats only non-fattening protein bread. You seem to have got him taped all right. I made inquiries at the post office, sir. The person behind the counter was most informative. I also learned that Major Plank is an enthusiast on rugby football and is hoping to make Hockley come Meston invincible on the field. Yes, yeah, so he was telling me. You're not a prop forward, are you, Jeeves? No, sir, indeed. I do not know what that term signifies. I don't either, except that it's something a team has to have if it's hoping to do down the opposition at rugby football. Plank, I believe, has searched high and low for one, but his errand has been bootless. Rather sad, when you come to think of it. All that money, all those cocker spaniels, all that protein bread, but no prop forward. Still, that's life. Yes, indeed, sir. I slid behind the steering wheel and told him to hop in. Oh, I was forgetting. You've got Stiffy's car. Then I'll be driving on. The sooner I get this statuette thing back into her custody, the better. He didn't shake his head, because he never shakes his head, but he raised the southeast corner of a warning eyebrow. If you will pardon the suggestion, sir, I think it would be more advisable for me to take the object to Miss Bing. It would scarcely be prudent for you to enter the environs of Totley Towers with it on your person. You might encounter his lordship. I should say Mr. Spode. Well, I'll be dashed. 
He has surprised me. Surely you're not suggesting that he would frisk me. I think it highly probable, sir. In the conversation which I overheard, Mr. Spode gave the impression of being prepared to stop at nothing. If you will give me the object, I will see that Miss Bing restores it to the collection room at the earliest possible moment. I'm amused, but not for long. I was only too pleased to get rid of the beastly thing. Very well, if you say so. Here you are. Though I think you're wronging Spode. I think not, sir. And blow me tight if he wasn't right. Scarcely had I steered the car into the stable yard when a solid body darkened the horizon. And there was Spode, looking like Chief Inspector Witherspoon about to make a pinch. Worcester! He said. Speaking, I said. Get out of the car! He said. I'm gonna search it! Chapter 12 I was conscious of a thrill of thankfulness for Jeeves's prescience, if prescience is the word I want. I mean, that uncanny knack he has of peering into the future and forming his plans and schemes well ahead of time. But for his thoughtful diagnosis of the perils that lay before me, I should at this juncture have been deep in the maligatawny and no hope of striking for sure. As it was, I was able to be nonchalant, insouciant, and debonair. I was like the fellow I once heard Jeeves speak of, who was armed so strong in honesty that somebody's threats passed by him as idle wind, which he respected not. I think if Spode had been about three feet shorter and not so wide across the shoulders, I would have laughed a mocking laugh and quite possibly have flicked my handkerchief in his face. He was eyeing me piercingly, little knowing what an ass he was going to feel before yonder sun had set. I've just searched your room. You have? You surprised me. Looking for something, were you? You know what I'm looking for. That amber statuette you said your uncle would be so glad to have. Oh, that? I understood it was in the collection room. Who told you that? A usually well-informed source. Well, it's no longer in the collection room. Somebody has removed it. Well, most extraordinary. And when I say somebody, I mean a slimy sneak thief of the name of Worcester. The thing isn't in your bedroom, so if it's not in your car, you must have it on you. Now turn out your pockets. I humoured his request, largely influenced by the fact that there was so much of him. A single midget would have found me far less obliging. The contents having been placed before him, he snorted in a disappointed way as if he had hoped for better things, and dived into the car, opening drawers and looking under cushions. And Stiffy, coming along at this moment, drank in the vast trousers seat with a curious eye. What's going on? she asked. This time I did laugh that mocking laugh. It seemed to be indicated. You know that black eye saw thing that was on the dinner table? Apparently it's disappeared. And Spode has got the extraordinary idea that I've pinched it, and am holding it. What's the word? Uh, not incognito. Incommunicado, that's it. He thinks I'm holding it incommunicado. He does. So he says. The man must be an ass. Spode wheeled around, flushed with his excesses. I was pleased to see that while looking under the seat, he had got a bit of oil on his nose. He eyed Stiffy bleakly. Did you call me an ass? I certainly did. I was taught by a long series of governesses always to speak the truth. The idea of accusing Bertie of taking that statuette. It certainly sounds silly, I agreed. Bizarre is perhaps a word. The thing is in Uncle Watkins' collection room. It is not in the collection room. Who says so? I say so. Well, I say it is. Go and look, if you don't believe me. Stop that, Bartholomew, you blighted dog. Bella Stiffy, abruptly changing the subject, and she hastened off on winged feet to confer with the hound who had found something in, I presume, the last stages of decay and was rolling in it. I could follow her train of thought. Scotty's at their best are niffy. Add to their natural bouquet the aroma of a dead rat or whatever it was, and you have a mixture too rich for the human nostril. There was a momentary altercation, and Bartholomew, cursing a good deal, as was natural, was hauled off topwards. 
A minute or two later, Spode returned with most of the stuffing removed from his person. I've done you an injustice, Worcester, he said. And I was amazed that he had it in him to speak so meekly. The Worcesters are always magnanimous. We do not crush the vanquished beneath the iron heel. Oh, was the thing there all right? Yes. Yes, it was. Oh, well, we all make mistakes. I could have sworn it had gone. But wasn't the door locked? Yes. Reminds you of one of those mystery stories, doesn't it? Where there's a locked room with no windows. And blowed if one fine morning you don't find a millionaire inside with a dagger of oriental design sticking in his wishbone. You've got some oil on your nose. Oh, have I? He said feeling. Now you've got it on your cheek. I'd go and join Bartholomew in the bathtub if I were you. I will. Thank you, Worcester. Not at all, Spode. Or rather, Sidcup. Don't spare the soap. I suppose there's nothing that braces one more thoroughly than the spectacle of the forces of darkness stubbing their toe, and the heart was light as I made my way to the house. What with this and what with that, it was as though a great weight had rolled off me. Birds sang, insects buzzed, and I felt that they were trying to say, all is well, Bertram has come through. But a thing I've often noticed is that when I've got something off my mind, it pretty nearly always happens that fate sidles up and shoves on something else, as if curious to see how much traffic will bear. It went into its act on the present occasion. Feeling that I needed something else to worry about, it spat on its hands and got down to it, allowing Madeline Bassett to corner me as I was passing through the hall. Even if she had been her normal soupy self, she would have been the last person I wanted to have a word with. But this she was far from being. Something had happened to remove the droopiness, and her eyes had a gleam in them which filled me with nameless fear. She was obviously all steamed up for some reason. And it was plain what she was about to say was not going to make the last of the Worcesters clap his hands in glee and start chanting hosannas like the cherubim and seraphim, if I got those names right. A moment later she revealed what it was that was eating her, dishing it out without what I believe is called preamble. I am furious with Augustus, she said, and my heart stood still. It was as if the Tudley Tower spectre, if there was one, had laid an icy hand on it. Why, what happened? He was very rude to Roderick. This seemed incredible. Nobody but an all-in wrestling champion would be rude to a fellow as big as Spode. Surely not. I mean, he was very rude about Roderick. He said he was sick and tired of seeing him clumping about the place as if it belonged to him, and hadn't he got a home of his own? And if Daddy had an ounce more sense than a billiard ball, he would charge him rent. He was most offensive. My H stood stiller. It was not stretching the facts to say that I was appalled and all of a doodah. It just showed I was telling myself what a vegetarian diet can do to a chap, changing him in a flash from a soft-boiled to a hard-boiled egg. I have no doubt the poet Shelley's circle noticed the same thing with the poet Shelley. I tried to pour oil on the troubled W's. I'm probably just kidding, don't you think? No, I don't. He didn't say it with a twinkle in his eye. No. Nor with a light laugh. No. You might have noticed it. Very easy to miss these light laughs. He meant every word he said. Then it was probably just a momentary spasm of, what do you call it, uh, irritability. We all have them. She ground a tooth or two. At least it looked like that's what she was doing. It was nothing of the kind. He was harsh and bitter, and he has been like that for a long time. I noticed it first at Brinkley. One morning we had walked in the meadow, and the grass was all covered with little wreaths of mist, and I said, didn't he sometimes feel that they were the elves' bridal veils? And he said sharply, no, never, adding that he had never heard such a silly idea in his life. Well, of course he was perfectly correct. But it was no good pointing that out to a girl like Madeline Bassett. And that evening we were out watching the sunset, and I said sunsets always made me think of the blessed Damazil leaning out of the gold bar of heaven. And he said, 
Who? And I said, the blessed Damazil, and he said, Never heard of her. And he said that sunsets made him sick, and so did the blessed Damazil, and he had a pain in his insides. I saw that the time had come for me to be a raisonneur. This was at Brinkley. Yes. I see, after you had made him become a vegetarian. Are you sure, I said, raisonneuring like nobody's business, that you were not altogether wise in confining him to spinach and what not? Many a proud spirit rebels when warned off proteins. And I don't know if you know it, but medical research has established that the ideal diet is one in which animal and vegetable foods are balanced. It's something to do with something acids required by the body. I won't say she actually snorted, but the sound she uttered was certainly on the borderline of a snort. Oh, what nonsense. It's what doctors say. Which doctors? Well-known, Harley Street physicians. Well, I don't believe it. Thousands of people are vegetarians and enjoy perfect health. Bodily health, yes, I said, cleverly seizing on the debating point. But what of the soul? If you suddenly steer a fellow off the stakes and chops, it does something to his soul. My Aunt Agatha once made my Uncle Perry be a vegetarian, and his whole nature became soured. Not, I was forced to admit, that it wasn't already soured, as anyone's would be who was in the constant contact with Aunt Agatha. I'll bet you'll find that that's all that's wrong with Gussie. He simply wants a mutton chop or two under his belt. Well, he's not going to have them. And if he continues to behave like a sulky child, I shall know what to do about it. I remember Stinker Pinker telling me once that toward the end of his time at Oxford, he was down in Bethnal Green, spreading the light, and a costermonger kicked him in the stomach. He said it gave him a strange, confused, dreamlike feeling. And that's what these ominous words of M. Bassett's gave me now. She had spoken them from between teeth, which, if not actually clenched, were the next thing to it and it was as if the substantial boot of a vendor of blood oranges and bananas had caught me squarely in the solar plexus. Uh, what will you do about it? Never you mind. I put on a cautious feeler. Suppose, not that it's likely to happen, of course, but suppose Gussie, maddened by abstinence, were to go off and tuck into, well, to take an instance at random, cold steak and kidney pie. What would be the upshot? I never supposed that she had it in her to give anyone a piercing look. But that's what she gave me now. I don't even think Aunt Agatha's eyes would have bored more deeply into me. Are you telling me, Bertie, that Augustus has been eating steak and kidney pie? Oh, good heavens, no. It was just a, a thingamagummy. I don't understand you. What do they call questions that aren't really questions? Begin with an H. A, a hypothetical, that's the word. It was just a hypothetical question. Oh, well, the answer to that is that if I found Augustus had been eating the flesh of animals slain in anger, I would have nothing more to do with him. She said, and she biffed off, leaving me a spent force and a mere shell of my former self. Chapter 13 the following day dawned bright and fair, at least I suppose it did. I didn't see it dawning myself, having dropped off into a trumpled slumber some hours before it got its nose down to it, but when the mists of sleep cleared, I was able to attend to what was going on. Sunshine was seeping through the window, and the ear detected the chirping of about 750 birds, not one of whom, unlike me, appeared to have a damn thing on his or her mind, as carefree a bunch as I have ever struck and it gave me the pip to listen to them, for melancholy had mocked me for one of her own, as the fellow said, and all this buck and hardiness simply stepped up the gloom in which my yesterday's chat with Madeline Bassett had plunged me. As may well be imagined, her obiter dicta, as I believe they're called, had got right in amongst me. This, it was plain, was no mere lover's tiff, to be cleaned up with a couple of tears and a kiss or two, but a real Class A rift which, if prompt steps were not taken through the proper channels, would put the loot right out of business and make it as mute as a drum with a hole in it. And the problem of how those steps were to be taken defeated me. Two iron wills had clashed. On the one hand, we had Madeline's strong anti-flesh-food bias, and on the other, 
Gussie's firm determination to get all the cuts off the joint that were coming to him. What, I asked myself, will be the harvest? And I was still shuddering at the thought of what the future might hold when Jeeves trickled in with the morning cup of tea. Eh? I said absently as he put it on the table. Usually I spring at the refreshing fluid like a seal going after a slice of fish. Preoccupied, if you know what I mean. Or distrait, if you care to put it that way. I was saying that we are fortunate in having a fine day for the school treat, sir. I sat up with a jerk, upsetting the cuppa as deftly as if I'd been the Reverend H.P. Pinker. Is that today? This afternoon, sir. I groaned one of those hollow ones. It needed but this, Jeeves. Sir? The last straw. I'd enough on my mind already. There is something disturbing you, sir. You're right there is. Hell's foundations are quivering. What do you call it when a couple of nations start off by being all palsy-walsy and then begin calling each other ticks and bounders? Relations have deteriorated would be the customary phrasing, sir. Well, relations have deteriorated between Miss Bassett and Gussie. He, as we know, was already disgruntled, and now she's disgruntled too. She's taken exception to a derogatory crack he made about the sunset. She thinks highly of sunsets, and he told her they made him sick. Can you believe this? Quite readily, sir. Mr. Finknortle was commenting to me on the sunset yesterday evening. He said it looked so like a slice of underdone beef that it tortured him to see it. One can appreciate his feelings. I dare say, but I wish he'd keep them to himself. He also appears to have spoken disrespectfully of the blessed Damazil. Who's the blessed Damazil anyway, Jeeves? I don't think I've ever heard of her. The heroine of a poem by the late Dante Gabriel Rossetti, sir. She leaned out from the gold bar of heaven. Yes, I gathered that. That much was specified. Her eyes were deeper than the depths of waters stilled at even. She had three lilies in her hand, and the stars in her hair were seven. Oh, were they? Well, be that as it may, Gussie said she made him sick too, and Miss Bassett's as sore as a sunburned neck. Most disturbing, sir. Disturbing is the word. If things go on the way they are, no bookie would give odds of less than a hundred to eight on this betrothal lasting another week. I've seen betrothals in my time, many of them, but never one that looked more likely to come apart at the seams than that of Augustus Finknoddle and Madeline, daughter of Sir Watkin and the late Lady Bassett. The suspense is awful. Who is the chap I remember reading about somewhere who had a sword hanging over his head, attached by a single hair? Damocles, sir, it is an old Greek legend. Well, I know just how he must have felt. And with this on my mind, I'm expected to attend a ruddy school treat? I won't go. Your absence may cause remark, sir. I don't care. They won't get a smell of me. I'm oiling out, and let them make of it what they will. Apart from anything else, I was remembering the story I had heard Pongo Twistleton tell one night at the drones, illustrative of how unbridled passions are apt to become at these binges. Pongo got mixed up once in a school treat down in Somersetshire, and his description of how in order to promote a game called Is Mr. Smith at Home, he had had to put his head in a sack and allow the younger generation to prod him with sticks. This had held the smoking room spellbound. At a place like Totley, where even on normal days human life was not safe, still worse excesses were to be expected. The glimpse or two I'd had of the local dead-end kids had told me how tough a bunch they were and how sedulously they should be avoided by the man who knew what was good for him. I shall nip over to Brinkley in the car and have lunch with Uncle Tom. You at my side, I hope. Impossible, I fear, sir. I have promised to assist Mr. Butterfield in the tea tent. Then you can tell me all about it. Very good, sir. If you survive... Precisely, sir. It was a nice easy drive to Brinkley, and I got there well in advance of the lunch hour. Aunt Dahlia wasn't there, having, as foreshadowed, popped up to London for the day, and Uncle Tom and I sat down alone to a repast in Anatole's best vein, 
over the supreme de foie gras or champagne and the nez ou pearl de alpe, I placed him in possession of the facts relating to the black amber statuette thing, and his relief at learning that Pop Bassett hadn't got a thousand quid object to art for a fiver was so profound, and the things he said about Pop B so pleasing to the ear, that by the time I started back my dark mood had become sensibly lightened, and optimism had returned to its throne. After all, I reminded myself, it wasn't as if Gussie was going to be indefinitely under Madeline's eye. In due season he would buzz back to London, and there would be able to tuck into beefs and muttons till his ribs squeaked, confident that not a word of his activities would reach her. The effect of this would be to refill him with sweetness and light, causing him to write her loving letters which would carry him along till she emerged from this vegetarian phase and took up stamp collecting or something. I know the other sex and their sudden enthusiasms. They get these crazes and wallow in them for a while, but they soon become fed up and turn to other things. My Aunt Agatha once went in for politics, but only took a few meetings at which she got the bird from hecklers to convince her that the cagey thing to do was to stay at home and attend to her fancy needlework, giving the whole enterprise a miss. It was getting on for what is called the quiet even fall when I dropped anchor at Totley Towers. I did my usual sneak to my room, and I had been there a few minutes when Jeeves came in. I saw you arrive, sir, he said, and I thought you might be in need of refreshment. I assured him that his intuition had not led him astray, and he said he would bring me a whiskey and s immediately. I trust you found Mr. Travers in good health, sir. I was able to reassure him there. He was a bit low when I blew in, but on receipt of my news about the what-not, blossomed like a flower. It would have done you good to have heard what he had to say about Pop Bassett. And talking of Pop Bassett, how did the school treat go off? I think the juvenile element enjoyed the festivities, sir. How about you? Sir? You were all right. They didn't put your head in a sack and prod you with sticks, did they? No, sir. My share in the afternoon's events was confined to assisting in the tea tent. You speak lightly, Jeeves but I've known some dark work to take place in school treat tea tents. It is odd that you should say that, sir, for it was while partaking of tea that a lad threw a hard-boiled egg at Sir Watkin. Did it hit him? On the left cheekbone, sir. It was most unfortunate. I could not subscribe to this. I don't know why you say unfortunate. Best thing that could have happened, in my opinion— the very first time I set eyes on Pop Bassett in the picturesque environment of Boston Street Police Court, I remember saying to myself, there sat a man to whom it would do all the good in the world to have hard-boiled eggs thrown at him. One of my crowd on that occasion, a lady accused of being drunk and disorderly and resisting the police, did on receipt of her sentence throw her boot at him, but with poor aim, succeeding only in beating the magistrate's clerk. What's the boy's name? I could not say, sir. His actions were cloaked in anonymity. A pity. I would have liked to have rewarded him by sending camels bearing apes and ivory and peacocks to his address. Did you see anything of Gussie in the course of the afternoon? Yes, sir. Mr. Fingnottle, at Miss Bassett's insistence, played a large part in the proceedings and was, I am sorry to say, somewhat roughly handled by the younger revellers. Among other vicissitudes that he underwent, a child entangled his all-day sucker in his hair. Well, that must have annoyed him. He's fussy about his hair. Yes, sir. He was visibly incensed. He detached the sweetmeat and threw it from him with a good deal of force. And by ill luck it struck Miss Bing's dog on the nose. Affronted by what he presumably mistook for an unprovoked assault, the animal bit Mr. Ficknottle in the leg. Oh, my! Poor old Gussie! Yes, sir. Still, into each life, some rain must fall. Precisely, sir. I will go now and bring your whiskey and soda. He was scarcely gone when Gussie blew in, limping a little, but otherwise showing no signs of what Jeeves had called the vicissitudes he had undergone. He seemed indeed above rather than below his usual form, and I remember the phrase, the bulldog breed, passing through my mind. If Gussie was a sample of young England's stamina and fortitude, it seemed to me that the country's future was secure. It was not every nation that could produce sons capable of grinning as he was doing so shortly after being bitten by Aberdeen Terriers. Oh, there you are, Bertie, 
He said, Jeeves told me you were back. I came in to borrow some cigarettes. Go ahead. Thanks very much. He said, filling his case. I'm taking Emerald Stoker for a walk. Your what? Or a row in the river, whichever she prefers. But Gussie! Oh, before I forget, Pinker is looking for you. Says he wants to see you about something important. Never mind about Stinker. You can't take Emerald Stoker for walks. Can't I? Just watch me. But! Sorry, no time to talk now. I don't want to keep her waiting. So long. I must be off. He plunged me in thought, and not agreeable thought either. I think I've made it clear to the meanest intellect that my whole future depended on Augustus Ficknoddle sticking to the straight and narrow path and not blotting his copybook, and I could not but feel that, taking him on Stoker for walks, he was skidding off the straight and narrow path and blotting his sea in no uncertain manner. That at least was, I was pretty sure, how an idealistic Beazle like Madeline Bassett already rendered hot under the collar by his subversive views on sunsets and blessed damsels, would regard it. It is not too much to say that when Jeeves returned with a whiskey and S, he found me all a twitter and shaking on my stem. I would have liked to have put him abreast of this latest development, but as I say, there are things we don't discuss, so I merely drank deep of the flowing bowl and told him that Gussie had just been a pleasant visitor. He tells me that Stinker Pinker wants to see me about something. No doubt with reference to the episode of Sir Watkin and the Hard-Boiled Egg, sir. Don't tell me it was Stinker who threw it. No, sir. The miscreant is believed to have been a lad in his early teens, but the young fellow's impulsive action has led to unfortunate consequences. It has caused Sir Watkin to entertain doubts as to the wisdom of entrusting a vicarage to a curate incapable of maintaining order at a school treat. Miss Bing, while confiding this information to me, appeared greatly distressed. She had supposed, I quote her verbatim, that the thing was in the bag. She is naturally much disturbed, sir. I drained my glass and lit a moody gasper. If Toddley Towers wanted to turn me into a cynic, it was going about it the right way. There's a curse on this house, Jeeves. Broken blossoms and shattered hopes wherever you look. Seems to be something in the air. The sooner we're out of here, the better. I wonder if we couldn't. I've been about to add, make our getaway tonight, but at this moment the door flew open, and Spode came bounding in, wiping the words from my lips, and causing me to raise an eyebrow or two. I resented this habit he was developing of popping up out of a trap at me every other minute, like a demon king in a pantomime. And only the fact that I couldn't think of anything restrained me from saying something pretty stinging. As it was, I wore the mask and spoke with the suavity of the perfect host. Ah, Spode, come on in and take a few chairs, I said. And I was on the point of telling him that we Worcesters kept open house when he interrupted me with the uncouth abruptness so characteristic of these human gorillas. Roderick Spode may have had his merits, though I have never been able to spot them. But his warmest admirer couldn't have called him Cooth. Chapter 14 Have you seen Finknuttle? Spode said. I didn't like the way he spoke or the way he was looking. The lips I noted were twitching and the eyes glittered with what I believed is called a baleful light. It seemed plain to me that it was a no friendly spirit that he was seeking Gussie. So I watered down the truth a bit as the prudent man does on these occasions. I'm sorry, no. I only just got back from my uncle's place over in Worcestershire. Some urgent family business came up and I had to go and attend to it. So, unfortunately, I missed the school treat. Great disappointment. You haven't seen Gussie, have you, Jeeves? Jeeves made no reply, possibly because he wasn't there. He generally slides discreetly off when the young master is entertaining the quality. And you never see him go. He just evaporates. So, was it something important you wanted to see him about? A what a breaker's nick! My eyebrows, which had returned to normal, rose again. I also, if I remember rightly, pursed my lips. Well, really, Spode, isn't this becoming a bit thick? It's not so long ago you were turning over in your mind the idea of breaking my neck. I think you should watch yourself in this matter of neck breaking, 
and check the urge before it gets too strong a grip on you. No doubt you say to yourself, you can take it or leave it alone, but isn't there the danger of the thing becoming habit-forming? Why do you want to break Gussie's neck anyway? He ground his teeth, at least that's what I think he did, and was silent for a space. Then, though there wasn't anyone within earshot but me, he lowered his voice. I can speak frankly to you, Worcester, because you, you love her too. Eh, who, I said. It should have been whom, I know, I suppose, but that didn't occur to me at the time. Madeline, of course. Oh, Madeline, yes. As I told you, I've always loved her, and her happiness is very dear to me. It is everything to me. To give her a moment's pleasure, I would cut myself to pieces. I couldn't follow him there, but before I could go into the question of whether girls enjoy seeing people cut themselves to pieces, he had resumed. It was a great shock to me when she became engaged to this man. Think no all, but I accepted the situation, because I thought that was where her happiness lay. Though stunned, I kept silent. Very white of you. I said nothing that would give her a suspicion of how I felt. Very puka. It was enough for me that she should be happy. Nothing else mattered. But when Fink Noodle turns out to be a libertine. Gussie? I said surprised. The last chapter I would have attached that label to. Pure as the driven S, I'd have thought, if not pure. What makes you think Gussie's a libertine? The fact that less than ten minutes ago, I saw him kissing the cook. Said Spode, through the teeth which I'm pretty sure were grinding. And he dived out the door and was gone. How long I remained motionless like a ventriloquist dummy whose ventriloquist has gone off to the local and left it sitting, I cannot say. Probably not very long, for when life returned to the rigid limbs and I legged it for open spaces to try to find Gussie and warn him of this V-shaped depression which was coming his way, Spode was still in sight. He was disappearing in a nor-nor-easterly direction, so not wanting to hobnob with him again while he was in this what you might call difficult mood, I pushed off south-southwest and found that I couldn't have set my course more shrewdly. There was a sort of yew alley or rhododendron walk or some such confronting me, and as I entered it, I saw Gussie. He was standing in a kind of trance, and his fat-headedness in standing when he ought to have been running like a rabbit smote me like a blow and lent an extra emphasis to the hoy with which I accosted him. He turned, and as I approached, I noted he seemed even more braced than when last seen. His eyes behind the horn-rimmed spectacles gleamed with a brighter light, and a smile wreathed his lips. He looked like a fish that's just learned that its rich uncle in Australia has pegged out and left it a packet. Oh, Bertie, he said. We decided to go for a walk, not a row. We thought it might be a little chilly on the water. It's a beautiful evening, isn't it, Bertie? I couldn't see eye to eye with him there. It strikes you that way, does it? It doesn't me. He seemed surprised. In what respect do you not find it up to sample? I'll tell you in what respect I don't find it up to sample. What's all this I hear about you and Emerald Stoker? Did you kiss her? The soul's awakening expression on his face became intensified. Before my revolted eyes, Augustus Finknoddle definitely smirked. Yeah, Bertie, I did. And I'll do it again if it's the last thing I do. What a girl, Bertie. So kind, so sympathetic. She's my idea of a thoroughly womanly woman. And you don't see many of them around these days. I hadn't time when I was in your room to tell you all about what happened at the school treat. Jeeves told me. He said Bartholomew bit you. And how right he was. The bounder bit me to the bone. And do you know what Emerald Stoker did? Not only did she coo over me like a mother comforting a favourite child, but she bathed and bandaged my lacerated leg. She was a ministering angel, the nearest thing to Florence Nightingale you could hope to find. It was shortly after she'd done the swabbing and bandaging that I kissed her. Well, you shouldn't have kissed her! Again he showed surprise. He had thought it, he said, a pretty sound idea. You're engaged to Madeline! 
I'd hoped these words to start his conscious working on all twelve cylinders, but something seemed to have gone wrong with the machinery, for he remained as calm and unmoved as the fish on ice he so closely resembled. Oh, Madeline, I was about to touch on Madeline. Shall I tell you what's wrong with Madeline Bassett? She's got no heart. That's where she slips up. Lovely to look at, but nothing here. He said tapping the left side of his chest. Do you know how she reacted to that serious flesh wound of mine? She espoused Bartholomew's cause. She said the whole thing was my fault. She accused me of having teased the little blister. In short, she behaved like a louse. How different from Emerald Stoker. Do you know what Emerald Stoker did? You told me. I mean in addition to binding up my wounds. She went straight off to the kitchen and cut me a package of sandwiches. I've got them here. Said Gussie, exhibiting a large parcel and eyeing it reverently. Ham. He added in a voice that throbbed with emotion. She made them for me with her very own hands, and I think it was her thoughtfulness even more than her divine sympathy that showed me that she was the only girl in the world for me. The scales fell from my eyes, Bertie, and I saw that what I had once felt for Madeline had been just a boyish infatuation. What I feel for Emerald Stoker is the real thing. In my opinion, she stands alone, and I shall be glad if you will stop going about the place saying she looks like a Pekingese. But Gussie! He silenced me with an imperious wave of the ham sandwiches. It's no good your saying but Gussie. The trouble with you, Bertie, is that you haven't got it in you to understand true love. You're a mere butterfly, flitting from flower to flower, sipping like Freddie Widgeon and the rest of the half-wits of whom the drones club is far too full. A girl to you is just a plaything of an idle hour, and anything in the nature of grand passion is beyond you. Well, I'm different. I have depth. I'm a marrying man, Bertie. But you can't marry Emerald Stoker! Why not? We're twin souls, Bertie. I thought for a moment of giving him a word portrait of old Stoker, to show him the sort of father-in-law he'd be getting if he carried through with the project he had in mind, but I let it go. Reason told me that a fellow who for months had been expecting to draw Pop Bassett as a father-in-law was not going to be swayed by an argument like that. However frank my description of him, Stoker could scarcely seem anything but a change for the better. I stood there at a loss, and was still standing there at a loss, when I heard my name called, and looking behind me, saw Stinker and Stiffy. They were waving hands and things, and I gathered that they had come to thresh out with me the matter of Sir Walken Bassett and the hard-boiled egg. The last thing I would have wished at this crucial point in my affairs was an interruption, for all my faculties should have been concentrating on reasoning with Gussie and trying to make him see the light. But it has often been said of Bertram Worcester that when a body in distress is drawn to his attention, he forgets self, no matter what his commitments elsewhere. The distressed body has only to beckon, and he is with him. With a brief word to Gussie that I would be back at an early date to resume our discussion, I hurried to where Stiffy and Stinker stood. Talk quick, I said. I'm in conference. Too long to tell you about it, but a serious situation has arisen, as according to Jeeves one has with you. From what he told me, I gather that the odds against Stinker clicking as regards to that vicarage have lengthened. More letting I dare not wait upon I witness on Pop Bassett's part, he gave me to understand. Too bad. Of course, one can say from Sir Watkins' point of view, said Stinker, who, if he had a fault besides bumping into furniture and upsetting it, is always far too tolerant in his attitude toward the dregs of humanity. He thinks that if I drill the distinction between right and wrong more vigorously into the minds of the infant Bible class, the thing wouldn't have happened. I don't see why not, said Stiffy. Nor did I. In my opinion, no amount of Sunday afternoon instruction would have been sufficient to teach a growing boy not to throw hard-boiled eggs at Sir Watkin Bassett. But there's nothing I can do about it, is there, I said. You bet there is, said Stiffy. We haven't lost all hope of sweetening him. The great thing is to let his nervous system gradually recover its poise. 
And what we came to see you about, Bertie, was to tell you on no account to go near him till he's had a chance to simmer down. Don't seek him out. Leave him alone. The sight of you does something to him. No more than the sight of him does to me, I reposted warmly. I resented the suggestion, and I had nothing better to do with my time than fraternize with ex-magistrates. Certainly I'll avoid his society. It'll be a pleasure. Is that all? That's all. Then I'll be getting back to Gussie, I said, and was starting to move off when Stiffy uttered a sharp squeak. Oh, Gussie, that reminds me. There's something I wanted to tell him, something of vital concern to him, and I can't think how it slipped my mind. Gussie? She called, and Gussie, seeming to wake abruptly from a daydream, blinked and came over. What are you doing hanging around here, Gussie? Who, me? I was discussing something with Bertie, and he said he'd be back when at liberty to go into it further. Well, let me tell you that you've no time for discussing things with Bertie. Eh? Or for saying A. I met Roderick just now, and he asked me if I knew where you were, because he wants to tear you limb from limb, owing to his having seen you kiss the cook. Gussie's jaw fell with a dull thud. You never told me that. He said to me, and one spotted the note of reproach in his voice. No, sorry, I forgot to mention it, but it's true. You'd better start coping. Run like a hare is my advice. And he took it. Standing not on the order of his going, as the fellow said, he dashed off as if shot from a gun and was making excellent time when he was brought up short by colliding into Spode, who had at that moment entered left centre. <laughs>